you owe it to the artist. If, if you're if you're going to push them to sign for the world, which I, is understandably something that some people are, and some artists are hesitant on, mm. then I feel you owe it to that artist to get their music and push it out there. No, don't just like wait until something's working here. Welcome to the Industry Observer podcast, presented by APRA AMCOS and hosted by me, Poppy Reed. For this episode, we had a chat to someone who may be young, but I truly believe he's well on his way to becoming a music industry heavyweight. Johan Panaya's label IOU, which has got Violence Soho, DMAs, Dizzy Death Rays, and Jack River on its roster, has helped its acts sell out shows in Europe, take home multiple ARIA awards, and perform on US TV shows like The Late Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Now he's launched a management arm too, but we'll get to that later. Here's my chat with Johan from the comfort of his kitchen in Redfern. So we're here with Johan from IOU. Thanks for having us in your house in Redfern. Thanks for coming over. It's a lot easier for me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So you don't own this place, but you do have uh, investment property, don't you? Yeah. I, I went house with my mum on some nice. place. It's like this like small apartment kind of out near Homebush Stadium sort of vibe. Yeah, yeah, good. That's pretty good. Like considering in two thousand and nine, you couldn't keep the gas on. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> inverted commas. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. Got lucky, but um, grateful, I guess, for the opportunities that have been given to us since two thousand and nine. But um, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's crazy. Last time I spoke to you, I was interviewing you about DMAs, um, and I interviewed them at their house. Now they've gone on to just do huge things like global recording contracts, booking mm-hmm. deals and stuff. It's just amazing how you've taken them from performing on King Street to where they are now, selling out headline tours. So what did you do differently to get to where you are? Like, what were the things that broke you away from the pack in the most dramatic way? I don't think I ever sat down and like drew out like some sort of graph and was like, all right, this is where the pack is going, this is where we're going to go. It was a lot, of, a lot of the things that we have done with IOU was just purely based out of necessity or that was the only option that we had. Um, it very much came out of a house party scene, um, which was particularly unique to Melbourne, I think, and even just our friendship group at that time. Um, we were probably going to, like, I met DZ Death Rays in a club in Melbourne and things like that. Just a specific scene um, that I guess we happened to find ourselves in. I, I grew up in Campbelltown, which is about 40 to 50 minutes southwest of Sydney. And when I was 18, moved to Melbourne and was lucky enough to, I guess, just meet specific people and through them met other people. So in terms of, like, what drew me away from the pack, I'm not sure what it was other than just, like, stumbling into... A specific, a specific moment um, and then trying to run with that, I guess. Mm. Why did you move to Melbourne from Campbelltown? Um, well, I, I always wanted to work from like the time I was probably 13 or 14, I, I wanted to be involved in the music industry um, and I quickly figured out that I was not musically talented in the slightest, so I knew that it was going to have to be on the opposite side. Um, and at the time, um, one of my favourite bands was this band called Kiss Chasey. And so I was like furiously like looking up their management company and um, at the time they were managed by um, a company called Melodic Music. So I was hitting them up saying like, you know, can I come intern for you guys? Um, And even when I was like 16 and stuff, they would send me flyers to like, it was was at a time where street teaming was still really big. So they'd be sending me flyers and I'd be like running around like the southwest of Sydney, like dropping stickers and shit everywhere. So, like, doing all that kind of thing and 
And then when I was 18, I was, I was looking at either potentially going into a music industry-based university course, um, and a few people were like, look, like, you know, you could definitely go and do that, but we think this might be a better route for you, perhaps just trying to get stuck into it and doing internships and that kind of thing. Um, and as, a, as the son of, like, two Sri Lankan migrants who, like, came here and, like, worked their fucking asses off to put my brother and I through school, my parents were horrified at that decision, but... Melodic music was based in Melbourne, so I remember I like I cancelled my schoolies trip, which you know probably nothing lost there to be honest. But um, cancelled my schoolies trip, and when I was eighteen, I maybe I think it was like three days after we finished school, like jumped in a van um, with one of the bands that was signed to Melodic Music and drove down to um, Melbourne and just started interning there, um, and then yeah, just kind of tried to work my way up through there and started managing some bands and. Uh, that, that was, I guess, brought me to that time where I was living in share houses with all of these very artist, artistic and talented people. Um, and that kind of then sparked off this, um, the rest of like, what is it now, eight years. When did your parents migrate from Sri Lanka? Uh, they moved here in 87 and I was born in 89. Okay. Yeah. And what was that like for them? Did they know anyone in Australia? What, did they move straight to Campbelltown? Um, I'm trying to think if they moved straight out to Campbelltown, actually. They may have been in Homebush for a small period of time before then heading out. But So basically, um, we had a bunch of... At, at that time, Sri Lanka was going through a civil war and there were a, a few countries that were actively um, allowing um, immig immigrants to come in, I guess. Um, and my my parents had some relatives who, like my grand uncle and aunt, who are already living here. So they kind of, yeah. it kind of made sense for them to, for, to come here. But yeah. yeah. Did and they talk about that? Did they talk about what that was like? Um, yeah, bits and pieces. I mean, I don't know. My parents are not the type to, I guess, really talk about things being hard and stuff like that. They're kind of just like, you just got to get on with it and try and make do. So yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure it wasn't, I don't think it was in easy move but like Australia has been great to them and you know they've definitely managed to like work their way up in all sorts of jobs I don't think they've ever felt like they were held back and I think they only look at it as a positive. Mm. Do you think their work ethic was passed down to you? Um, I don't want to flatter myself by saying yes to be you honest because they, <laughs> um, they yeah I mean it's inspiring like like Probably subconsciously, I don't think as like a 16-year-old I was sitting there being like, oh yeah, this is so inspiring to see my parents. But looking back on it, it 100% is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you said that your parents weren't too supportive of you packing up and moving to Melbourne to mm. do an internship. Who were the people that nurtured your aspirations during that time? I had a few people. Um, there was a guy called Michael Panetta who was like Kiss Chasey's direct manager at Melodic Music, and he remains, like, a very, very good friend of mine, and some, we, don't, we probably don't talk as much as both of us would like to, but someone that, like, I, if I was ever still in a bind, I would be calling him up and, um, you know, asking his opinion on not just music, but just life in general, um, and I was lucky enough that, to have him sort of nurturing me through that time, because it was, you know, 18 to 22, 23 is kind of, like when I feel most people do like their actual growing up sort of thing. They're out of school, they're probably out of home. That's when you sort of figure out who you are. Um, 
Jaden Comerford was always a very good friend of mine. I know he's on the podcast, the last yeah. podcast. Yeah. So um, he was always just great because he ran, uh, he, when he started, he was running a label called Boomtown Records and it was a label that I very much loved. So I remember being somewhat starstruck the first time I met Jaden um, in Melbourne and he, like I was, I worked for the stable group for a, for a while and similarly to Michael, um, he's someone that, you know, I would very happily just call up and ask their opinions on, once again, not just music, but life sort of stuff in general. And, and then How beyond... How did you meet Jadon, just going back a bit? Um, Jadon, I probably met first through... I, I was managing a pop-punk band called Stealing O'Neill, and they were very much in the same circles as, say, the Getaway Plan, and they were touring with a lot of, like, the Boomtown staple-type bands. Um, so probably just from, like, from that scene, you know? Yeah. And was because you'd heard of Jadon, so you were like, he was this kind of figure that you respected. Yeah. And then you got to meet him. Yeah. Was it was it kind of starstruck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was cool. It was cool. And like, you know, there was another guy called um, Jai Al Atas. So yeah, Al Atas. Yeah, he also ran at a similar time to like Jadon starting Boomtown. Jai, I think, started Below Par Records mm -hmm. um, with with Matt Hawks and a guy called Mark C as well. So like, even when I was younger. Then 18, I, like, I remember being, like, 16, emailing um, the Below Par guys, being like, how do you, like, how do you start this? Like, how did you do that? Because they started their label when they were 16, signed, like, something with numbers, Kiss Chasey, The Scare, a number of great acts. Like, we started importing records. I, I believe they did Yellow Card and Brand New and stuff like that. Yeah, like, they were, they were smashing yeah. it. So I, I was just sitting out in Campbelltown being like, I have no fucking idea how any, like, where do you even start? Um, but you knew you wanted to start a label? I knew that I, yeah, I think I, I always had like, I guess it's what everyone sort of like fantasizes over, you know, like starting no. a label. Well, yeah, maybe not, <laughs> I don't know. But like, it's that, like, yeah, maybe some people like fantasize over the idea of like their almost famous like journalism moment or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Whereas for me, I do think that oh, despite starting in management, this idea of a label was always sort of in the back of my mind because thought it would be cool, I guess. Mm. Um, which it's not, I figured out. <laughs> um, it's but, actually a lot of hard work. Yeah, yeah, it's, all, it's not like <laughs> anything what I thought it was going to be. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I think they were like probably very supportive and supportive in the sense that they actually responded to my emails, you know, as like a 15 or 16 year old kid that you've never met asking you questions that you probably don't have that much time for. Those, those people... Th those three groups of people, whether it was Jadin, whether it was Michael, or whether it was Jai and the Below Par guys, I vividly remember would always hit me back and like take the take time out of um, their own time to to um, to help me out. Did they know that you were like 15, 16? Uh, probably, yeah. Like I, I was emailing them from like a Hotmail account and like... I'm sure the language that I was using was pretty ridiculous. So, what was yeah. your Hotmail account address? Oh, it was just Johan Panay at Hotmail.com. Oh, oh, there was another you didn't one. You have Skater Boy with an 8? Oh, no. So my first one was MrLover114 at Hotmail.com. Yes. Yeah. It's probably still active. That was like my MSN one when I was a kid. It's a big shaggy thing. Okay, so you're in Melbourne. You're suddenly hanging out with these people who you'd been on email with idolising, trying to get to where they were. Tell me how the first IOU party came about. First IOU party came about because it was purely out of necessity. Um, I had started, I was still working at Melodic Music, but had instead, 
had moved from interning to actually managing a couple of bands, one being Stealing O'Neill, the second being a band called Neon Love, who are from Ballarat, mm-hmm. um, who was sick, um, but never really took off. But they were going out on tour with another band from Brisbane called Comic Sands, um, who also fantastic band. Um, they were doing like this East Coast tour and the Melbourne show of the tour got cancelled. Um, so, and at the same time, I was living in this share house, which was very much the centre of this sort of group of friends and scene and like people were playing in these bands. I was living with a bunch of people that didn't really work in music, um, but were very much like going to shows and stuff all the time. And we had started, I guess we we're, were all pretty broke, like they were students, I was managing some bands that like, you know, not, no one was like making money. We, so we were like getting these bills coming in and it was getting, I'm sure we would have found a way to scrape by, but we would have been scraping by. So we were like, this Melbourne show got cancelled. I'm pretty sure like we were just kind of like drunk one night and we we're like, fuck it, let's just move the show to the backyard. We'll charge people 10 bucks. And that way it kind of works for everyone. Bands get to play a show. We had this amazing backyard as well, which was like unheard of considering the location of the house it was like, you'd walk out into this sort of courtyard and then the, as you walked further, it sort of opened out into this like uh, greenery area, which was kind of square, but like covered by these huge trees. Yeah. It was like perfect. It was like, for what we were trying to do, there was no better location. I strongly believe that. Like no house <laughs> in Melbourne would have been better for, for this. Um, so we were like, fuck it. Let's just throw the show here. Let's do it. And um, some of our friends DJ'd. Um, Neon Love and Comic Sans played and there was like 250 kids because we just put this thing up on Facebook and it just sort of went. These bands were, once again, they're not, they weren't overly popular in a commercial sense. They weren't really getting, like they were getting a bit of Triple J play but not a ton. Um, But they were very much part of this sort of scene. So kids just started sharing it around and all of a sudden we were making money and paying our bills and then some and these parties were just kind of insane so that's the that's the way the first one came about okay and the bands were okay that their gig got moved from a venue to a backyard well they had well yeah yeah i think they were i don't remember anyone ever complaining about it i mean i'm sure they would have loved to do the venue show but when your gig gets cancelled like five or six days out you kind of just take what you can get especially in a city like melbourne where there's like Venues are booked pretty far in advance. Yeah. And can you remember how much the gas bill was that you had to pay? Uh, I can't, to be honest. It could be around like 250 or something like that. I yeah, don't think okay. it was an exorbitant amount of money. Yeah. It was more just because we, none of us had any money anyway. So yeah. we were like, this. Like, yeah. we how much like, did you make? Um, after we paid for like the lights and the sound and like DJ equipment and stuff, I think we only made like 900 bucks. That's great. Yeah, but... Every- oh, wait, the bands had been paid as well? Uh, I believe so, yeah. yeah I think okay. the bands got paid. It's not bad. Yeah, but I remember, like, we had this, like, little rice cooker, which our door girl was using as, like, the <laughs> money sort of thing. <laughs> so after the party, because, like, the part... It was a house party, but li- there was live music happening, so it could only really run till like, 1am and then eventually yeah. got shut down. But I remember having this, like, rice cooker <laughs> and, like, putting it into my, like... Uh, like my cupboard and like covering it with clothes and stuff because like it was like this 800 bucks that we were like can't let anyone find this <laughs> yeah. this is like 
It was pretty fucking funny. So put it in the cupboard with clothes on top. Yeah, Don't yeah. take it to the bank. No. No, no, no. Well, it's 1am, so... <laughs> oh, okay, I yeah. see. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was cool. It was cool. And I still remember, like, our... Because, ex- like, we knew that cops were going to come and all this kind of thing, but we would go to the police office, um, like, to the police office before... Um, a couple of days before and tell them that we were shooting a video clip in uh, our backyard and that there would be live music and that there's going to be a crowd but the crowd is just here for the, so for, for the thing and that it'll all be wrapped up around midnight. So the cops would always hold off coming to the house until midnight and they were, they were always very, very nice about it anyway when they came. Um, but it was always a thing like hide the rice cooker before the cops come so they go and see that like yeah, we're making yeah. money off this shit. Oh, yeah. yeah, imagine if they saw the woman at the door with the rice yeah, cooker. Yeah, 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 you don't want that. Taking $10 so, notes, yeah. genius. And so those housemates that you, they helped you plan the original IOU party, um, what do they think of your job now? Are you still in touch with them? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I guess as, as like any share house goes, like not as in touch as what you hope, but... When we catch up, it's always great. One of them lives in Germany. Actually, like, um, we had... There's a guy called Tim O'Keefe who was, like, integral in these parties because he was the only one that knew how to, like, run lights and stuff like that. I didn't know how to do that sort of shit. Um, and he never lived in the house, but he and I still, to this day, work constantly because he's um, started... Um, he's become a director, basically. So he shot like a bunch of Violent Soho videos for us and go- goes out on the road Great. with them constantly and stuff. So like those, are, it's nice when the, like those very early friendships then continue on in, in a different working relationship. He also played in that band Stealing O'Neill that I managed. Um, so I keep in touch with him a lot, but then yeah, as, as I said, as share houses go, people tend to move in different directions, but everyone's still really close and the, the beauty of social media that you can keep in touch with people. Yeah, but they must be totally tripped out of what the party's now turned into. Like I don't know the what they... That you created from it. I don't know what they think of it, to they be honest. They don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, like I said. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't think it's something that, like, <laughs> when we do catch up, we're like, so, like... <laughs> I don't know, it's not. It's never really something that comes up. I'm more talking about, like, AFL or some shit. Yeah, okay. And so then the deal with Mushroom happened yep. in 2011. Yeah, I think right. so. I'm, I'm Honestly, I'm not 100% sure. It might be 2011, yeah. Yeah. So how did that even come about? That came about just because, um, well, Matt Kedinsky had approached me and just said, look, we really like, we like what you're doing. Um, would you be interested in coming over and doing some A&R stuff for our label, for like our label? And also it kind of like, I guess for, for Mushroom, they were like, we, it would probably be cool to have a label like IOU. Be part, there's probably, there was probably a space for IOU to fit mm. in with the group. Um, and at that time, you know, we were putting out records, but they were like handshake deals, they were EPs, and it was very much like we needed to either partner with someone to like be able to afford to put out like albums for our bands, or those bands would just have to move on. It was the nature of the... So it was kind of perfect timing. So um, you weren't putting together contracts or anything? No, 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 no. I still remember like... <laughs> It was very good of Matt to still follow through with it. But, like, I remember, like, we, like, were signing uh, the deal with Mushroom and stuff. And they were like, all right, cool. So, like, you know, where's the contracts for, like, Bleeding Knees Club and DZ and stuff? And I was like, I don't think we have any. And they are like, how you... I know we don't have any. Yeah, they are like, how have you been making money? And I was like, I don't think we have been making money on the records. I think, like, Shock took their distro fee 
as, as they should, and then the rest of the money just went to the bands. So it was over like... So yeah, obviously that's changed now. His reaction must have been quite interesting. Well, I don't think he was that horrified by it because I don't think anyone there was there was that much money being made from the EPs anyway. So, um, but obviously we got all that sort of shit in check. It's been mm. that was like a great learning curve for me as well because it's honestly not something that I'd ever really thought of. Do you handle the contracts for your bands now? I'm yes, yeah, certainly involved in the process. We have. We have use of like the legal team at Mushroom and stuff who are fantastic, so constantly working with them. But and they've been extremely patient with me in actually teaching me how all this shit works because I'm still kind of figuring it out. But um, yeah, contracts and stuff's not really my forte. But. Has your deal with Mushroom changed since 2011 when you joined? Because I know that you joined as a sort of imprint of Elusive, right? Yeah, yeah, it has it has changed more recently where it's a sort of just firmer JV sort of thing. Great. Um, yeah, it's cool. Like, Mushroom have been fantastic to work with. I was kind of like, at the time when we did the deal with Mushroom in 2011, there were a few other options or like just at least conversations sort of going on. And really everyone was kind of saying a similar thing. But, and so for that, it becomes very confusing where you're like, you know, everyone hears these like horror stories of like these big bad labels coming in and fucking you over and all that yeah. kind of shit. I don't know. I'm certainly not suggesting that any of the other labels were like, would have fucked me over, but I'm grateful that Mushroom have just done exactly what they said they would do and then some for us. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been fantastic. I mean, it's interesting because you have friends across the major labels and the whole industry. So for you to understand what your contracts look like with your artists, you would almost be able to compare them to major label contracts with artists, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, I guess so. To a, to a degree. I mean, like, you, 100% we have, like, very close friends in all labels, but it's not like we're getting our contracts out and, like, yeah, comparing course. them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I definitely I feel like have a vague idea of like how our label functions comparatively to others. Do you feel like it's more artist friendly than some major label deals that you know of? I think there are probably parts of our deals which are more artist friendly and perhaps there's parts that aren't. What parts? Well, I mean, everyone loves a huge advance, right? Yeah. Which is not something that I, like, you know, we certainly, in, in my mind, I don't think that we skimp on our artists in terms of their advances, but if I'm going up against like a, a Sony or EMI or, or a Warner and something is very, very hotly contested, we're not, and it comes down to an advance, we're not going to be able to match that. That's just a fact. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the main yeah. place. And you know, some, sometimes, and it's totally fair enough where if artists are like, look, like, you know, really appreciate it and all that kind of thing, but. We also need to get fucking paid. If you're managing bands, or even your own musical career for that matter, you should put an APRA AMCOS membership to good use. Whether you're looking for business tips, songwriting opportunities, or international insight, they've got you covered. To find out more, call your local APRA AMCOS writer services rep or visit apraamcos.com.au. Where do you feel like IOU is more artist-friendly or the most artist-friendly? Um, I would like to think, and this goes, goes back to like, I, I've not worked personally like with the, uh, um, like our management stuff. So it's no new that we haven't really delved too far into like working with a major label and stuff like that. Mm. 
But I do think that creatively we give our artists a great deal of freedom to sort of pursue what they want to, perhaps more and take and allow them to take more chances should they want to. Um, we, do, we do prefer to sign our artists for the world, but we invest heavily in trying to break them in the world for that. And I know that like perhaps some, some of the majors, they, I'm not, well, I don't know, I'm probably talking out of tone here, but you know, you hear stories of bands getting signed for the world, but then it all being about just Australia. And then if Australia works, then we'll think about the world. Whereas that's not really the, t the way that we work. I, if we're going to sign an act for the world, then I firmly believe that you start working it from on a world scale from the start. Yeah, like you get a team in the US and you get a team. Yeah, in the like UK at, at to least at least at the very least bringing in publicists from like day dot and stuff like that, and that's something that we try to do with all of our artists. Mm -hmm. um, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense, but obviously it's financially it's like a hellhole. Like, yeah, yeah, it's I can like imagine. yeah. So you know, there's a lot of risk involved in that, but it's just I guess the ethos behind behind our label. Yeah, I mean, there is that idea of let's break the artist territory by territory. Let's For sure. do Australia first. Once you're big there, then we'll, that buzz will, that groundswell will help the US and the UK. But um, Luke Gerges, our owner, he did a podcast with John Watson and he firmly believes that if you're going to sign an artist worldwide, then you need an on-ground team Absolutely. in the international territories. Absolutely. I, I would very much agree with that. At, at the very least, a publicist that is actually servicing it and sort of feeding the music out to... I think you have a... You, you owe it to the artist. If, if you're, if you're going to push them to sign for the world, which I, is understandably something that some people are, and some artists are hesitant on, mm. then I feel you owe it to that artist to actually um, to get their music and push it out there. No, don't just like wait until something's working here and then hope that there'll be a flow-on effect. It doesn't always work that way. Yeah. I actually wanted to chat to you about your relationship with your artists. I know that you're involved on a personal and emotional level with an artist. Every label owner is, but I feel like you, because you're, you're such a boutique label, it's heightened. Mm -hmm. So I think part of your core business is dealing with the part of an artist's life that doesn't affect the charts. It's, I, I love it. I mean, to be fair, something that I learned very early on in when I was managing acts is that it should always be a business relationship before it's a friendship. I was managing a band and at that time, you know, we were all super young. Like they were maybe like 18, I was like 21 or something. It's like, and it was, it'd be, I feel like, and we ended up parting ways. They went with a different manager and it was a very like emotional thing as it would be now if any of our bands left the label as well. But from that, it kind of taught me that this is a business at the core of it. You know, you do need to, there do, does need to be like, it's great to be able to have those friendships with people, but I do think it's important that, you know, we all establish that this is, that we're here f to work. Yeah. Um, Which band was that that you're thinking of? It was a band called Hal. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in terms of, like, the relationships that we have with our artists, like, I, I absolutely fucking love it. And, you know, they're some of the most inspiring people that I've met, and they're constantly are a source of inspiration for myself with what I'm trying to do with IOU, seeing how hard they work and like, you know, talking to them about how they see their brand sort of evolving and stuff like that, learning from like each other in that, in that respect is, is a great thing. Mm. And then also like, yeah, at certain times, like being able to ch chat just about pressures that they're feeling 
with their work, but also pressures they're feeling outside of that as well. So mm. it's fantastic. I really wouldn't have it any other way. I would hate the idea of like working with an artist and like it only ever being like it just being a very sort of stale relationship like that. I don't. We're we're working in an industry which is so full of emotion, really, um, and like we're working on without sounding like and like without being over the top. We're working with art. Um, on a day-to-day basis, and I do think there's like you know, there's a there's a lot of emotion running through that. So yeah, it's cool. It's so important to be aware of where your artists are and where just people are that you care about emotionally. Like mm-hmm. I think not only is mental health so important, but just checking in on a person and not having, like you said, a stale relationship with someone. It's just nice that you're able to help them out on different levels. Absolutely, yeah. It's cool. And I mean, you know, they help me out as well. It's not it's certainly not like a one way street. Yeah. So your management arm Converge launched on April eleven. Congratulations. Thank you. How did that come about? You said that you were managing artists before, yeah. so why did it take you so long to launch the arm? Well I was sort of never I, I quickly realised that management was perhaps not exactly what I thought it was cracked up to be. Um, what the, did you think it was? Well, you know, I just thought it'd be cool. But <laughs> management in... Me and my friends. Well, like, I thought it would be more, perhaps more creative than it actually is. Um, I, I, well, and perhaps that was the specific role that I had found myself in, the position that I found myself in. It was just, like, a lot of booking vans, a lot of booking hotels, a lot of making sure that backline would be ready, which it inevitably nearly never was. Getting phone calls, being like, what the fuck's going on? That kind of thing. And that's not where I... Flourish, it's not my strong point. I'm not good at that sort of thing. Um, so I sort of decided, I was like, you know what? Let's push that aside. Let's focus on the parties and now this label thing where I did feel it was like incredibly um, fulfilling. The management thing regarding Converge sort of came around because um, there's a band called Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever, um, who... I had sort of come across and really, really liked and I wanted to sign them to IOU, the label. Mm. Um, However, another mushroom label called Ivy League had sort of already been pursuing it um, and so we had decided that, you know, perhaps it's best that Ivy League just run with it. They were kind of already there first and pretty far down the track. Um, But the Ivy League guys were like, well, you know, they don't have a manager. Like, would you be interested? And at the time, I was like, no, absolutely not. And then I just kept listening to the music more and more and more. And I just I was like, I need to try and work with this band in any, any, any sense that I can. Um, so we sort of met up and it went really well. And, you know, we'd also, um, perhaps a year before that, had hired a guy called Scott Armstrong to run our events. And he was, he was managing some acts on the side and was extremely good at it. And kind of had figured out that a lot of my weaknesses um, that I'd described before he was fantastic at. So it kind of worked out that perhaps this could be a really good team. Mm. Um, So, you know, we started managing Rolling Blackouts and it started to do quite well. Scott um, came across a band called The Belligerents in Brisbane who had played some of our parties up there and whatnot and we always sort of got along and they didn't have management so he took them on. How long have you been managing both of those bands? Rolling Blackouts, I feel like we've been managing them now for like a year and a half or maybe nearly, yeah, a year and a half, potentially two years. Yeah, great. Belligerence is a bit fresher. I think we officially picked them up 
last Big Sound. Okay. Um, and started working with them. So from seeing them at Big Sound. Um, well, conversations were already happening. Yeah. At Big, before Big Sound, we kind of like got a bunch of espresso martinis and like all cheers and said that we were going to fucking do it love at it. Big Sound. Yeah. This is why I love Big Sound. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, the announcement for Converge on April 11 was very much a thing of us just making everything official. Our workload or whatever we were doing absolutely hasn't changed. It's exactly it's business as usual. Um, but I did feel like it was a good thing for us to separate the two sort of thing. Like, Converge is still very much a part of the, what we do as, at IOU and those artists that are on um, Converge are, very still, are still very much part of, like, the IOU family network and and that thing, that kind of thing. Um, but did think that, you know, it would be a nice touch to like actually carve out a separate path for it. Yeah. And where did you find Scott a year or so ago? Um, well, I knew Scott f for years. Um, he, I used to book purple sneakers in, yeah. um, in, Mel in, uh, in Melbourne and like Scott is a really good DJ. So I used to book him to DJ all the time and, um, Scott actually, he probably came on in an official sense at IU like two years ago, but for years before that was running our blog. Um, so he's been part of like this extended IU family for like an incredibly long time. And yeah. It's great to have him on board now. Yeah, awesome. So what does the team at IU look like now? You've got Scott, you've got yourself. Yeah, um, a girl, like I honestly don't know what the fuck we would do without her. Um, uh, a girl called Blaze Sherry. Who is actually, she's like part of um, the Mushroom um, network there, but she's our label manager and very much keeps the label running and keeps everything in place and where it should be and we would be absolutely fucked without her. Um, so I think like at the cor core of IOU, it's the three of us and Matt, obviously, who's still very much involved in, you know, overarching decisions and, and whatnot. Um, and then one of the one of the great benefits of the mushroom deal that we did was that we have access to mushroom staff and st things like that. So we have full access to their PR um, team, which I think is like they're amazing for us. Um, you know, marketing help and all that kind of thing. So while the actual direct IOU team is relatively small. Um, the network that we have and the people that we are lucky enough to work with because of a, um, a deal like the one that we did with mushrooms, like, yeah. That's ideal. So you've got this, you it's know, good. core group of people and then these resources which are Absolutely, available to you yeah. that you can tap into. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, something else that we do at IOU is um, touring. So we're constantly bringing out international acts and um, touring them in Australia and being lucky enough to have one of the head promoters at Frontier um, in the form of Michael Harrison kind of take very much uh, take me under his wing and like teach me the ropes and all that kind of thing. And then through that, we're like incredibly lucky to work with um, the other people at Mushroom, uh, sorry, at Frontier, whether it's like Karina or Awana or Sahara. And they're all very much um, involved in like supporting our vision for, for what we're trying to do, yeah. It's great. Amazing. So, do you think that IOU and Converge, the management firm, will always be a part of Mushroom Group? Yeah, I, 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 I have no reason to, to not think that we'll continue that working relationship and and friendships. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. So, 
Are you going to launch a publishing arm? What's next? You've got touring, you've got the label. Well, funnily, like we do kind of have, uh, like there is the opportunity to do like an IOU publishing thing um, there with Mushroom Music, but we just haven't signed anything yet. So I'm kind of just so like waiting. thinking about it? Yeah, thinking about it. It's like with anything, it's the, like the way that we started Converge or the way that we started IOU, it's very much about not trying to do too much. In fact, probably more consciously trying to do less so that the things that we are doing, we can make sure that we're really nailing. So I've kind of been sitting on this IU publishing thing for like the last year. Okay. Sort of just sort of wait, waiting. It's like, you know, perhaps we were too busy with the label or there was too many tours or this management thing was taking up a lot of time. I, don't, I have no um, desire to like sign an act for publishing and then not have the headspace to actually be able to do anything with it and just let it sit there. So, um, you know, hopefully in the future we'll, um, we'll be able to make something happen, but we'll see how it goes. I think slow growth is really important, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Slow burning and having it get to the management arm, gosh, what are we now, eight years after, it's <laughs> yeah. wonderful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, it felt, it felt like the right time and the right artists sort of just happened to be there. It was the right combination of people and skills and all that kind of thing. It's like, it's been really good. So, I mean, there's no rush to, I guess, expand, converge in the short term or anything like that. We need to get a bunch of runs on the board before we start trying to do that, but we'll see where it goes. How many artists do you think that you can take on and manage yourself on top of the 10 that you work with, with IOU? I'm not really sure, to be honest. It's I feel pretty. I, 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 yeah, I feel pretty maxed out at the moment. But I, and this is something that I'm not familiar with. But obviously, mushroom are through successes. It's just this feel like expansion. You know? I'm definitely a micromanager and like tend to get very like I just need to like do everything. Mm. Um, I think the older I'm getting, beginning to realize that that's just not. If we want IOU to, if I want IOU to hopefully get where I once dreamt that it would and still do, I'm going to need to allow more creative freedom for other people and bring more people into the team and that kind of thing. That's not going to happen at, at a rapid pace or anything like that. Um, but, but yeah, I guess we'll just see how it goes. Yeah. I was chatting to a years back Marilyn Manson's manager in a hotel hallway and he was saying that he only manages Marilyn Manson and two other artists. Mm. And he's like, I need to be there if they want me at their show in Russia. I need to get on a flight and be there. Yep. So he feels like he would. He wasn't a fan of the manager that had a huge roster of acts. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I haven't been in management that long to be able to to judge it. I mean, it's obviously a very, a much more intensive relationship constantly, you know, yeah. there's a lot more emails sort of flying back and forth and that kind of thing. As I said, like, I, I wouldn't be able to manage any artists without the network of people that I have around me that have skills much um, um, reaching much further than my own sort of thing. So I guess we'll just sort of feel it out and if we ever feel like it's becoming too much, then we'll probably pull back. Yeah, that's smart. Okay, so obviously this podcast is sponsored by our good mates at Afro Amcos. So as a manager and now a label head, you must have worked quite 
closely with Aframcos over the years. Can you tell me a bit more about the role that they've played in your artist careers? Well, I think like just completely just looking out for them. It's nice to have someone there like, you know, kind of handling that side of things. Because if I'm being absolutely honest, it's a world that I don't know that much about. Um, still like learning and all that kind of thing. But, you know, it's great. I like our artists are incredibly happy with the work that Upper Amcos do. And it's nice to have a group, like a group out there actually looking out for their best interests and making sure that like, you know, the right, like incomes are flowing back to them as they should and that kind of thing because otherwise that so much of that stuff can just go by the wayside yeah it's so important and they work so hard they are all Absolutely. like it's insane i was in their office the other day um and i was chatting to one of their staff members and she said that she was in byron bay at her friend's boutique clothing store and she noticed there was music playing she's like so where does this music come from that you're playing and her friend said oh this is just my spotify playlist She's like, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. You'll need yeah. to fill out this licensing form and get wow. a license for it. So they're just actively, yeah. like that, that... So I assume they're not friends anymore. Yeah, they don't talk. Yeah. Okay. No, but like the way that she is is just indicative of the whole company. Yeah. That's how they are. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I look, and that's what it... It's, um, it's a great thing for our artists, I guess, to have people out there looking out for them. Yeah. So I think... To finish off, like I feel like your career in the industry is a really interesting and unique one because you have kind of entered it when the digital boom was already happening, yep. I feel. A lot of the variables that worked a decade ago in the music business just don't work now. Mm. You know what, I think our label in general, and perhaps it's one of the more unique things about us, is we've always been very driven through social media and having those, like back in the day, street teams were kind of that social media in terms of it's like giving you that direct like one-on-one -on -one contact with people. And I get subconsciously, I actually, perhaps this makes no fucking sense. I'm just literally thinking of it now. It's like, that's kind of like what we've always sort of done. And that is that like form of street teaming. So I'm not like handing out stickers for melodic music in Campbelltown anymore, but we are constantly having those one-on-one -on -one relationships and interactions with kids everywhere. Um, and I feel like our label has a very distinct voice. Um, and it's one that I like to think allows our artists to the benefit of like, you know, we, a lot of the acts that we've signed recently have come, like we're releasing their first songs. There is, they didn't, not that they didn't exist before, but to everyone's knowledge, no one had a fucking clue who they were. DMAs, Green Buzzard. Um, Jack River had done stuff before, but it was still very new. Our newest signing, Brightness, um, Montgomery. So these are all artists that had never released music before until they joined IOU. And I think it's like a great thing that we have that social media platform built up as a label um, and our blog that we can sort of reach kids immediately. Yeah, it's interesting. Like a lot of your artists have been able to just 10x their careers based on IOU's audience. Like I'm kind of thinking of Violent Soho and how they had label deals in the past yep. overseas um, and they went great critically um, mm. but they didn't earn an ARIA award until last year. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of that is because of IOU's audience. Um, I don't want to... <laughs> 
I don't think I can claim that, to be honest. I think, <laughs> I think, I think I, yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely. I can claim I, it. I you can, you I can, can claim a lot of it. You yeah. can claim it. I would po politely say there's probably a bit of an overreach. But the music but is just as good. The music is just as good. Yeah, I think it's just like, perhaps it's a time and a place thing, you know? At the time when we were lucky enough to sign Soho and sort of definitely like push them into our audience, but it's a credit to those guys where they've managed to take that band and where they always sort of believed that it could. Yeah. Um, it's been an incredible thing. And as I said earlier, like we're constantly inspired by the artists that we work with and their ethos and the friendships that they share with each other. Violence are the perfect example of that, where there's a, there's a belief, um, friendships that they've sort of melded over, over the years. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like great songwriting and also perhaps it was just a time and a place where people wanted to go to a balls out rock show type thing, you know, they wanted to see people on stage with guitars because it was it was kind of like the complete opposite to the electronic music that was very popular and still continues to be now. But it's great that like kids, like you know, I remember big day at, there was a big day out where like Flume was playing and Violent Soho were playing, and we had kids in the front row of Soho shows wearing Flume T-shirts. And I, would, I hope that it was vice versa. But it's like, it's fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, but I think it was just, a t it's a time and a place and they write great songs. They're fantastic people and I think that shines through as well. It's like, you can't underestimate the power of someone's personality mm. when it comes to music as well. And like, that band is a great example of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, from going from like, stickers in Campbelltown to now, it's like amazing to see your trajectory. Oh, thanks, yeah. I mean, it's... um. Funny, never really get to like actually sit back and think about it until you start have conversations like this. But um, yeah, I guess it's been cool. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. It could all fucking crash and burn. By the time this podcast comes out, I <laughs> might be over. <laughs> I highly doubt that. Thank you for having us, Johan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Industry Observer podcast. For more content like this, subscribe on iTunes or head to theindustryobserver.com.au, Australasia's new destination for music industry news, discussion, charts and more. This podcast is presented by APRA AMCOS. More than 90,000 music creators rely on APRA AMCOS to get paid when their music is used. They license businesses to use music and distribute the royalties to their members. APRA AMCOS, made by music.